Here we are, the, the second Sunday after Easter, and uh, in our text today from First uh, Peter, we're going to focus on the resurrection again. Last week we also, the Sunday after Easter, we talked about the resurrection and the significance for us, and I'm not in a rut uh, about the resurrection like um, one pastor was accused of being. It was Easter and uh, a CEO who was in attendance that day, you know what that is, don't you, CEO, Christmas and Easter only attender? said to the pastor, you're in a rut. said, every time I hear you preach, you preach on the resurrection. Well, it just happened, of course, that that was Easter Sunday. Well, I'm not in a rut. But today and, and next Sunday as well, out of 1 Peter, the first chapter, we're going to hear what he writes about the resurrection because we need to understand that the resurrection is something that we just don't need to be satisfied with in celebrating once a year on an annual basis But the resurrection is something that we really need to encompass in the entirety of our life. Uh, We need to make sure that we understand the meaning and the power of the resurrection in our life and what the resurrection brings into our life that enables us to live as a believer in this culture today and have a dynamic lifestyle that can have an influence upon this culture. See, we need to be more Uh, interested and concerned about demonstrating the power of the resurrection in our life than we are about celebrating it once a year. So we're talking today about demonstrating a life after Easter. And that's what Peter is writing to these believers about in 1 Peter. He's writing to a group of beleaguered believers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And it's somewhere between the year of 60 to 64 A.D., And what's going on with these believers is that they were being uh, abused by overwhelming bosses. They were ridiculed by unbelieving spouses. They were criticized by skeptical neighbors and friends. And they were also facing a future persecution that was going to be worse than anything that they had already gone through. Needless to say, it was an anti-Christian society in which these believers lived. And the question that was raised by these believers could be the very same questions that you and I as believers in this 21st century culture would raise. And that is, how can we live the gospel life in these times of stress and anxiety and uncertainty? And the answer to that is what Peter gives in response to the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for our life. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 12 and says that he's written encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. See, it's the true grace of God that allows us to stand firm in the face of ridicule, anxiety, conflicts, and suffering. And all of that is made possible because we have embraced the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to where it's an everyday experience rather than a once a year celebration. Now look with me in our reading for today in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. And I said to the 9 o'clock crowd this morning, I said, if if you read your Bible with a pen in your hand and, and you come across some powerful phrases and words and you underline or mark them or circle them or do something like that uh, so that you've got your Bible marked and got notes beside it. I think in these first nine verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, there are multiple phrases and words that you ought to mark as you hear and read this passage of Scripture. Because they're so profound because they're all based upon 
what God provides for us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that allows our life after Easter to be a demonstration of the resurrection of the living Lord Jesus Christ in our life day by day and moment by moment as we live in this culture today. So let's hear what Peter says. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth. That's a phrase you ought to mark, a new birth. Into a living hope. That's another powerful one. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, that's why we're focusing on the resurrection again. All of this, a new birth and a living hope, is through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power. That's another powerful phrase. Until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. To summarize all that, what Peter is saying there in verse 9 is that What we are receiving is through Jesus Christ and our faith in Him and the power of the resurrection. We're receiving a new birth, a living hope, an inheritance that will not fade and perish. We're receiving the power of God that shields us and protects us and that gets us through the times of life that are difficult so that we can rejoice in God, show forth our faith in God, live the resurrected life, which is life after Easter. Now, what I want to do is go back and very quickly this morning, just look at these five great things that Peter points out that are a result of our belief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that affects our life after Easter. The first one is that God has given us a new birth. That was one of the phrases I said you might want to underline or circle. In in verse 3, he says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Basically, that simply identifies how we become a Christ follower, how we become a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that is that we are born again. Have you ever thought about this? If somebody identifies himself and says, I'm a born-again Christian, isn't that a little redundant? I mean, that's kind of like saying wet water or a round circle. Water by its very nature is wet, and a, and a circle by its description is round. But when we say we are born-again believer, we are actually describing the only way that we can become a child of God, a part of the kingdom of God and being a Christ follower, and that is to be born again. You remember in John 3, Nicodemus, the learned scholar in, in, in the Jewish lifestyle, came to Jesus and wanted to know the secret of life. And Jesus said to him, you have to be born again. And, and Nicodemus said, how is it that a man can enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? He was thinking about a physical birth. Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth. And that's why he said to him in verses 5 through 7 of John 3, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's a physical birth. 
And spirit gives birth to spirit. That's our spiritual birth he's talking about. And you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You see, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power that God displayed in that, then he has given to us a new birth as we believe in Jesus Christ. That means for every follower of Jesus Christ, we have two birthdays. We have a physical birthday. We have a spiritual birthday. And the question comes to us today then is, how do I prove either one of those? How do I prove I've had a physical birth? Well, you say, well, I can produce a birth certificate. Well, that doesn't mean anything because they can be forged. They can be created and doesn't represent who you are. Well, you can say, well, here are my baby pictures that show I was born and I was a baby. And I say, well, they don't look anything like you. How, does I, how can I believe that's you? Well, you can say, well, here are my feet print on my birth certificate. Well, you say, well, your feet aren't that size today. They don't look like that. So how do we prove that we are, have been born? The only real proof is that we are alive and we live our life to the fullest. That, that proves that we have been born and we are alive. We say, here I am, I'm alive. My heart's beating, my lungs are breathing. I'm, I'm alive, I'm, I'm a real person. Well, then the same thing is true then in our spiritual life. How, how do we prove our spiritual birth? Well, you say, well, I got my baptismal certificate. Everybody that gets baptized here, uh, after professing faith in Christ, we send them a baptismal certificate, something they can keep, frame, whatever they want to do with that. But a baptismal certificate doesn't mean that you actually have been saved and been born again. Anybody can be baptized, and it doesn't mean that they're born again. You can say, well, I got church membership. Well, that doesn't mean a whole lot. We got 1,600 and some church members. We don't know where three-fourths of them are on Sunday mornings. Well, you can say, and you use the language of the church, I prayed a prayer. I walked the aisle. I went forward. I shook the pastor's hand. You know, those are church language words that we use that outside people who are not church don't understand. And sometimes we take them for granted and don't understand the meaning behind them. The only real proof of our spiritual birth is the power of God alive in our life and showing forth in our life. See, you, you might not remember the very moment, the hour, the day, the place you were when you came to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But if you're really committed to Christ, if you've experienced that new birth, you've got that new birth through the power of the resurrection of Christ, then your life is different. And you show forth through your life the resurrected power of God that brought Jesus forth from the dead because you have passed from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. When we become born again, we don't talk the way we talked before we became a disciple of Christ. We don't live the way we lived before we became a disciple of Christ. We do things according to the way the kingdom is laid out for us. So it's God's spirit in your life that changes you so you have validation of the fact that you are born again and you are a spiritual child of God and you have that new birth. Now, to anyone here today who has not experienced that new birth, here's what you need to do. First of all, you need to admit your sin, that you've sinned and you've sinned against God. That's your very nature. You can't help it. You're a sinner by nature and choice. Then you need to confess your sins to Jesus Christ. That's more than feeling sorry for him. You need to have remorse about your sins. And you need to repent of him and turn from your sins and turn to God. And you come to Christ in faith and you believe that he died on the cross for your sins. And you place your faith in him and you ask him to be the Lord and Savior and leader of your life and the forgiver of your sins. And that's how you become born again. 
And Peter says that that is possible only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the same power that brought Jesus from the dead is the power that's alive in you and brings you alive. So the first thing we notice is through the resurrection, we are born again. We have a new birth. Then the second thing that Peter talks about is that living hope. God has given us a living hope. He says that again in verse 3. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why are we emphasizing the resurrection again about this life after Easter? It's because through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a living hope. And that is so, so powerful for us. See, that's different than the way that we usually use the word hope. We throw the word hope around that we um, not really anticipate, but we are just, just really hoping that maybe, possibly, what we want will come to pass. Like, I hope I get this job. I hope I pass my test. I hope I did a good job on my project. You know, I hope that, that it doesn't rain before we get home today. You know, all those kinds of things are speculative about hope. The difference in the hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is we have a living hope. Our hope is based upon not speculation, but upon the absolute truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive, having defeated sin, death, and the grave. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we have what this world desperately needs, and that's a living hope. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. And we need that because of the culture in which we live today. And we need to show forth that living hope because of the people that we come in contact with who live in this culture today. Some of them are facing hopelessness. They have a hopeless marriage, a hopeless job, a a hopeless health issue. And we need to claim the living hope in Jesus Christ and proclaim that living hope. See, the culture today lives as if it's living in a hopeless end. And we as believers of Jesus Christ have an endless hope. And Peter says that's all possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a living hope. Then the third thing Peter points out is that we have an inheritance from God. And he says to us that God safeguards our inheritance in heaven. Look at verse 4. We have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, which is kept in heaven for you. An inheritance is the gift that's passed on. When somebody dies, they pass it on to you. You are an heir. You don't earn it. Sometimes you don't deserve it, but it's a gift that's passed on to you. It's an inheritance. Sometimes I, I see uh, parents and grandparents traveling in RVs usually, and that's where they got the bumper sticker on there that says, we're spending our children's inheritance. They decided they're going to spend it so their children won't squabble over it, right? Well, God is not spending our inheritance. He's protecting our inheritance. What is that inheritance? It's life in the kingdom of God. It's life in heaven with God forever, for eternity it's eternal life. See, if we, if we had hope only for this world, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, and he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 
In other words, we shouldn't just hope for life in this world. We live for another world. We are citizens of another kingdom. We are aliens here on earth. We look for places to, to safeguard our, our precious and most valuable items. You might have a safe in your home. You might have a, a safety deposit box at the bank. Or you might have some other safe place where you keep something. Peter says to us that the most valuable thing that we possess, our spiritual inheritance, our life in the kingdom of God, our eternal life, our salvation, is safeguarded by God in heaven. And notice how he describes that eternal inheritance through our salvation. He says it never perishes, it never spoils, it never fades. You see, that's in total contrast to everything in this world around us. Everything around us is going to perish or spoil or fade away, but not our eternal inheritance. See, it never perishes. Your new birth is imperishable. The word of your redemption is imperishable. The mercy of God is imperishable. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is imperishable. And the inheritance that God has for you is imperishable. Also, it says it never spoils. When we go buy things, we look at the expiration date on it. Whether it's a gallon of milk or a can of peaches, even prescriptions have a date on when they expire because they will spoil. Our inheritance, our eternal life, never spoils. And Peter says it never fades away, it's permanent. You know, there are a lot of things that to advertise today that are permanent, permanent markers. If you scrub hard enough, you can do something to get rid of that permanent mark. Sometimes you go and you get, a, you, you get, you get your hairstyle and you get a permanent. Does it really last forever? No, you go back in a month or so and you get another one. Permanents aren't permanent. But our eternal life in the kingdom of God is permanent. Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Now you think about that inheritance. There's no inheritance tax. No probate court can take it away from you. Nobody can dispute your will and claim entitled to it. Because your name and your title have been recorded in the Lamb's book of life in heaven, and that's a great reason to rejoice. And all of that's possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the fourth thing that Peter points out. And that is that God shields us by his power. Verse 5, he speaks about those who, are, who through faith are shielded by God's power. The word he chooses to use for shielded is an interesting word. It's actually a military word that describes soldiers who were gathered around their camp to protect those who are in that camp from attack by enemies. Now, here's what it means for us. Here's what we can claim. We are saved by God's grace, and we are kept by God's power. Once God accepts your profession of faith in him, and you are born again, God places you into his family by that new birth, and nothing or no one can cause you to lose your relationship with him. You don't have to work to keep your salvation because he is keeping you. Jesus said in John 10, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
You see, God shields us by his power. And that eternal inheritance, we cannot lose it. You might abuse it, but you won't lose it. It can't be taken from you. You can't give it back. Because God is shielding you, safeguarding you with his power. And then the fifth thing that Peter says is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that God allows trials in our life to be temporary. You see, it's a reminder to us once again that being a believer in Jesus Christ, committing our life to him, does not exempt us from some of the harsh realities of life. These believers in Asia Minor were going through times of difficulty. They were going through persecution at work, at home, in the community, and there was a greater persecution that was awaiting them yet that Peter writes about. They were living in a culture that did not appreciate them. They were going through some ordeal of affliction. And at the same time, there would have been those in that gathering who would become sick. There would be those who would die. There would be those who would go through times of tragedy. But listen to what Peter says to them in verses 6 through 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, trials come to us in all kinds of ways. These have come, and this is why he says they've come, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What's Peter saying to us? It's a strange thing, but he tells us then that we can rejoice greatly when we're experiencing trials. And Peter doesn't just say rejoice like be happy. He uses an intense word for rejoice. In fact, it's the strong word that Mary used when she learned that she would give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And she said, I will greatly rejoice in God, my Savior. It's the same word that's used in the great Hallelujah Course in Revelation 19.7, where all the heavenly beings say, Hallelujah, for our Lord God reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. How do we give thanks and rejoice when we're going through times of trials? Well, we don't just try to ignore the pain. We don't deny that bad things happen. And it's certainly not rejoicing in the fact that bad things happen to us. But what it does mean is that we are able to rejoice in the fact that through the resurrection, the living Lord Jesus Christ... And the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us to walk with us in every circumstance of life. That God is right there with us. And we are not alone in the circumstances of life. We are not alone in the trials and afflictions and persecutions of life. But God is there with us. And he allows those trials to be temporary. And that causes us then to be able to rejoice in those times. Not in the trials and afflictions, but because God is with us in those times. And you can't say, well, I don't feel like rejoicing. Well, our life as a believer isn't driven by feelings. It's driven by faith. And we have to believe. We have to believe what God says to us. That these times of trials and difficulties and afflictions come, Peter says, so that our faith which is more valuable than gold, 
may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I think Peter sums all that up about our salvation and what that brings to us through a new birth and a living hope and inheritance that will not fade and that God shields us and protects us and that when we go through trials and difficulties we can rejoice in the fact that God is there with us. In verses 8 through 9 he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him, now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, that is the description of life after Easter. It's life lived in the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And here's some things I think that it literally means for us. If we believe in more than just a once a year celebration of the resurrection, but we believe in the living Lord Jesus Christ, and we claim all the promises that Peter mentions here that God gives to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we have a living hope. And that living hope should surpass our hopes that we pin on anything in this world. We should recognize our eternal wealth in Christ. And we should not store up treasures here in this world with temporary things. We should trust our future to Christ and stop worrying about his ability to fulfill his promise because he brought Jesus back from the dead and he can meet any need that you have and fulfill every promise that he has given to you. And then we should be people of gladness and joy rather than being depressed and despairing like the culture around us. Why? Because we are people of the resurrection. We are people who have committed our life to the living Lord Jesus Christ. And day by day we are being shaped into his image, his character. And God is at work in our life through that living hope. Through the inheritance that he has promised to us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. To shape us and mold us into the image that God wants us to be. And in all of that we rejoice. We display the joy and faith and glory that we experience on Easter Sunday every day. Because we live in the power of the resurrected living Lord Jesus Christ. So our prayer today should be, Lord, may we demonstrate life after Easter as people of a living hope through our living Lord Jesus Christ. May that be what we do as we go forth from this place. Father, we thank you today for your words of Scripture. We thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit you gave to your Apostle Peter who penned these words for us that we might rejoice and we might have hope. We might be confident in in our life in this world and assured of eternal life in the world to come and spend eternity with you in the glory of heaven. Father, help us to live day by day as resurrected people in the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ through a living hope as we are born again. Through Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.